Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And Lord, we pray for your guidance in your word, that it is guided from the page to the ear to the heart. And we pray especially for that entrance into the heart, that it has its complete and perfecting work. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight... <laughs> I am going to bravely attempt to um, explore the subject of marriage with all of you unmarried people from an unmarried person myself. Now, I believe this is doable to an extent because God's word is clear enough for unmarried people to understand the principles that it wants to lay down. And um, that this is important, not just for um, an unmarried person to tune out, because we have a lot to learn about marriage today, because society has not modeled successful marriage by any shot. And in learning what marriage should be, and what it looks like biblically, it will help prepare you today in who you are, and who you're looking for, for your future spouse, and what your life should look like down that road. So knowing these things now, even though you might think marriage is at least 10 years away for me, some of you think it's only one year away, but um, regardless, though it's in the future for all of us, it will come. And the sooner we have even the most fundamental understanding, the sooner we can lay a good, found, a good foundation and a framework and the rest can be fleshed out as we get there. So the less we have to learn in marriage, the more prepared we'll be for marriage. Then, um, after tonight, being next week, I would like to then look through this passage one more time and reap more benefits from it in the context of dating. And that will be very <laughs> much more present and relevant to our uh, modern, today, right now situation. So we'll go both aspects. But before we get to the dating aspect... We have to look at marriage first. Because there's no point in talking about dating until we understand what dating leads to. Right? So, we'll just look at the marriage tonight. So, let's um, bear with one another as this is uncharted waters for us. Speaking of uncharted waters, it has been said that marriage is like the high seas. You've got your highs and your lows. The only problem is 
there is no compass to navigate these high seas. Well, in my opinion, that was written by an unbeliever because we're holding a pretty good compass for marriage. And although we are not going to read every single passage about marriage tonight, we are going to look at this small portion in Genesis and paralleling a couple other passages, try to get a pretty basic picture. So we do have a compass, and it's right here. And the high seas are for us to master, not to be, well, well, you know, master in the fact that we succeed, not that we are, you're my woman, and you're going to listen to a master. Not that kind of mastership. <laughs> well, let's look at this. I want to um, start in verse 18 by showing us the purpose of marriage. It says that the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good. This is remarkable, really, when you look through chapter 1 and we saw that God said it was good several times. Up to this point, creation has been a masterpiece. Everything has been good. But now God says one thing is not good. That's that man is alone. He should never be alone. He, he, he's designed to have companionship. He's not complete as he is. And so, the purpose of marriage, we see at least in this setting of the Bible, is to bring completion to the man through companionship. That man would not be alone, but he would be complete. That him and the woman, actually if you go back to chapter 1 when it talked about being created in the image of God, it talked about male and female being the image of God. So really man by himself is sort of this half image, if you will, but with the woman coming alongside, he becomes complete. And the whole image of God is there and man is now living as he is designed to live, with companionship. So that's the primary reason I see here in this text. Pulling from other areas in the Bible, I see at least three other reasons for the purpose of marriage. And that is, um, first of all, for a family setting in order to raise children for the glory and love of God. And you look at Genesis 1.28. God blessed them, man and woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion and on for it. So it's for a family setting so the offspring can be made. They can be raised up in the setting of man, woman, loving God so that they're raised up as lovers of God. Now marriage is completely failing when children are made and these children are let loose to live in their bestialities and, um, well, in both senses, I guess. Um, and they become monsters and this world becomes godless. But God wants godly man and woman to raise godly people for his glory. Second reason would be for sexual satisfaction. And this is important. And Paul is not shy in saying that this is a purpose for marriage. He makes this very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll read a couple verses out of that. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband because the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So the husband has authority over her body. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So they share authority over one another's bodies. What is the purpose? 
in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps for limited time so that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says there is within the human flesh, and I, you know guys, I might be um, 10 years older than some of you, and I remember the lack of self-control within the sexual passion at your age group. It hardly changes at my age group. It's just something that is within people. There's this lack of self-control. And, um, of course, we try to control it, but it needs this... At some point, it's designed to be used. And Paul says, look, the marriage is made for the release of that sexual tension so that you can be satisfied in that area with your wife. So he actually commands, do not abstain from having sex. Couples should have it frequently. We'll get into that. Um, <laughs> don't get too excited. Okay, we're not getting into like that. We'll get into that point in a minute later down the road. But it's kind of an awkward subject sometimes, you know? We're just all like bachelors and bachelorettes and we're talking about this. And third reason is because marriage is a model. The purpose of marriage is to model Christ's love for the church. And Ephesians 5 uh, portrays this very clearly, a passage which we'll turn to later on in our evening. So that's the purpose. And mainly that man can, and woman can be complete with companionship. Because it's not good that man lives alone. And Proverbs 18.1 says, The man, slash the person who isolates himself, seeks his own desire and rages against all sound wisdom. Bottom line, Solomon says, it's not a good thing for a person not to have any sort of fellowship or companionship. And marriage is the ideal way to do that. The lock is complete with the key. The violin is complete with the bow. And so man is complete with the woman. Moving on to the roles of marriage, we get a glimpse of this here in verse 21. So... The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and clothed the place of flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, how in the world does this describe the role of marriage? Turn, if you will, hold your place here and go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is on page 975, if you have the Cambridge ESV. <laughs> Sorry, none of you have that. <laughs> there you go, paperbacks 838. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Ephesians is right in there. Now, in Ephesians 5, Paul is describing here the two rules of man and woman. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. So the picture here is now being, we're seeing the model for marriage as an example of Christ's love for the church. 
And in this illustration, Christ is the husband, the church is the wife. And Paul says that the wife should react to her husband in the same way that the church reacts to Jesus Christ. He is master, he is head. The church is to surrender everything to the head and to trust his love for the church and depend upon his goodness. That's the surrender. And Paul says the wife is supposed to surrender to her husband in the same way, trusting in his love and in his goodness to provide for her best. So the wife is not to be a leader and a head in the family. She's supposed to be the co-leader with the husband, and the husband has one slight edge over the woman. That's why Paul says, Christ is the head, so is the husband. He's the head of this marriage union. (laughs) Now, why do we need a head? Because when it comes to marriage and you have marital problems, which I'm told happen, (laughs) how do you solve those issues when there's disagreement or varying opinions? How do you come to a conclusion? You can't have democracy. (laughs) What are you going to do? All right, honey, let's vote on this. I vote yes. Well, I vote no. That got us very far. (laughs) You can't do that. You're going to have a tie every time. So in order to keep this union from separating in complete frustration because you can't come to a conclusion, God made it simple and said, all right, man's ahead. So in these situations, he makes the best decision for both of you and what he says goes. But, but, But why the man? That's not fair. How else? I mean, seriously. Let's give God justice here and say, what else is he going to do when there's two people? You could flip a coin and say, all right, fine, it's a woman. Now the man's saying, why the woman? That's not fair. It has to be one or the other. So God said it's man. And here's the reason. Man was made first. Who else would I have gone with? I couldn't have gone with the woman first. She wasn't around. She's the second one to come. So man's got the first. But I believe the second reason is, um, not just that man's first, but man has, um, not that woman is incapable, but man has a slight edge in being ahead because man thinks with his head. And this is true. Women think generally with the heart. I mean, girls, you girls have some sort of compassion and emotion thing going and it's cool to watch. I, I'm learning that with Brittany. I'm learning how to be more tender-hearted because that's what she is. But now on the other side, guys have the ability to rise above emotions, not be too affected by them, and to think clearly, not in the fog of those things. And so man at times can exercise his head in a more clear and methodical way, but the downfall is we often make decisions without thinking about the concerns of other people. Suck it up. This is the best choice. Um, you know, Brittany often showed me, maybe that's not the most loving way. <laughs> so the heart and the head go together. It's part of the completion. But the head has a slight edge in making decisions. So this is, I see why God made the um, choice that way. Now, for the man, verse 25. So wives, surrender. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is a much heavier responsibility than surrendering to someone else's will. 
as Christ loved us, complete sacrifice, complete laying down of his rights, even to the point of death and excruciating pain, he said, this is how I love the church. And Paul is not ashamed to say in the same way, husbands, love your wife. Now, both, you see, both are to love one another, but the man here is called to a higher love because this is a sacrificial love. This is where the man has to choose, because I love my wife, I'm going to put aside my rights to make the marriage work and to be better. And, and this is where a lot of marriage is failing because, well, we have a lot of men who know nothing of sacrificial love. They know of gratification in the sense of love. Uh, sitting on the couch and watching football and whatever appeases them and commanding the woman to make them a sandwich. And I know this isn't always the situation, but whether that's not actually what happens, it's often the mentality of man. I'm king. I'm head. So serve me without the sacrificial love. Now, we'll, uh, we're done in Ephesians. We'll be back in Genesis 2. While we say the rule in marriage is that man is the head, it's important to clarify that though he is the head, he is not a head. I mean it by that is he is not above. He's not better than in that sense. He's not ahead of the woman. Better than her. And this is where the rib comes into showing us the role of marriage. Man is not better than wife uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7 that woman is the crown, or I'm sorry, is the glory of man. Woman's the glory of man. So man might be the head, but woman is the crown that sits on the head. Second reason that man's not better than woman, and it's actually going to start showing woman's actually probably better. Um, I can't believe I'm saying that, but Look, God created Adam out of dust, chapter 2, verse 7. So man is dust refined. But woman came out of the man. So woman is dust refined times two. She's more refined than the man. And third reason, Eve didn't need Adam. Adam's the one that needed Eve. So we're seeing that Adam is not at all above. And here's where the rib comes in, fourth reason. God takes the rib out of the side of Adam. This shows the connection, the roles of man and woman. He's not better than her. She came out of his side. And I'm going to quote something by Matthew Henry, who eloquently explains what this means, the rib coming out of the side. Think about the implications here. It could have been God took something out of the head, but no, it was the rib out of the side. He says this. This is Matthew Henry, not God speaking. Come on. (laughs) He says this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of the head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Aww. That's the role there of the man and the woman co-equal, but when it comes to the decision, man's the head. And so that's where we see the rib showing us the role. It's a love union. No one's better than the other. Now in verse 24, we come with God's first rule for marriage. And oh how I wish more, and please get these rules down, so simple. 
Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two rules, leave father and mother, and then I like how the old King James puts this, when it says to hold fast wife, it says to cleave. I like the rhyme. Leave father and mother and cleave to the wife. The result is that you become one flesh. The two lives become weaved together. So you weave into one flesh by leaving every other relationship and cleaving to this relationship. That's a simple rule. Now leave father and mother, and it should well be said, leave every other relationship as well. Men, your wife is going to become your best friend. Girls, your husband is going to become your best friend, and it should remain as that. Guys, we don't have other intimate and emotional relationships with other girls. It's just a friendship. No, you leave every other relationship. You, you set that aside, and particularly, especially, fantasy relationships. Example, magazines and internet. Women, you two have fantasies with, I'll talk about this next week, um, books and movies and media and, I know, gag me. Um, <laughs> all of, leave those. And even, I believe, I think, from observing, there's a danger, men and women, in having even same-sex best friend relationships. Not that you get rid of your friends, I'm not saying that, but when you keep those friends as better best friends than your wife or your husband. Your spouse should be your best friend. And then every other friend, you can. that's great, but don't put them over your spouse or you're going to start to feel frustration when your spouse, who's the opposite gender, doesn't act like the other best friend that you wish you could be hanging out with. So keep your friends and all, but your spouse becomes the greatest friend and you must have that confidence. Leave every other relationship. Well, that's not as lame as it sounds because this leaving comes with a cleaving. This simply means have sex. Embrace each other. We make a lot of embarrassment and to do about sexuality and rightfully so because outside of marriage it's wrong and we shouldn't really even have these Let's just not go down that road. But within the marriage context, God glorifies this. I just read you the passage from 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul said, Do not cease having sex with your spouse. Because if you do, you're going to be so hungry and deprived for sex that you're going to go somewhere else. You must to maintain the relationship on an emotional level have sex. It must continue. Now, I, in your situation, when I was your age, and I heard this said and all that, I always thought, man, you're, you're crazy for telling me I have to have sex with my wife. That's not going to be a problem. Okay, I can't wait to that night. Well, I've been told by a married couple that I am close to down the hill at the church, um, they put this very cute saying, I think it's very wise, um, while dating, it is the hardest thing to stay out of bed. You just want to do it even while you're dating. 
That's so hard to stay away from it. But when you're married, it's the hardest thing to stay in bed. It's almost as if once you attain to that, it's like, oh, okay. Not that it's like nothing anymore, but life just becomes stressful and these things get in the way and, and frictions in the relationship. These have got to be dealt with. And, and then the cleaving must happen. So, as Paul would say, as, as God would say, cleave, you must do it. Don't refrain from it. These are how you weave as one flesh. It's how it's done. Now, um, moving towards our finale, our close, um, I'm going to give us six ways, six helpful principles to keep in our minds for our future um, in how to keep ourselves weaved as one flesh to our wife. How to keep ourselves weaving all others and cleaving to each other. Alright? So six helpful ways. We'll skim through these. First, recognize and respect each other's roles in the marriage. Uh, we talked about that. Remember, women surrender, guys sacrifice. Respect and recognize those roles. And, and, and don't start to become the other role because the other person's failing. What you do, if the guy is not sacrificing enough girls, your surrender to him will win his heart. So the more you do your role, the more he'll respond in his role. And the other way around. If she doesn't want to surrender to you, well, if you're not loving her, there's no question on why that's not, why she's not surrendering. There's no reason. Duh. You're not loving her. So sacrifice for her and she'll surrender to you. So respect each other's roles. Recognize them and leave them to each other's roles and perfect your roles that it brings you together. So number two, that we prioritize the preferences of each other over ourselves. Her preferences, prioritize. His preferences, prioritize. Because James 4.1 says that fights and quarrels come from this. The lusts waging war within your members. By that verse, I can say and apply that I fight with people when I am striving to gain my lusts and my desires and my preferences. When me and Johnny, it's the closest thing I have to a marriage relationship yet, because you know I live with a guy most of my life. Share, he's my brother, if you don't know. Share the same room for most of our lives. It's almost as if being married. <laughs> um, I can understand that when I'm selfish, we're at war. Oh, maybe not punching each other, but there's that friction. It's just not this this unified, loving relation. It's just kind of like a, uh, and like we roll our eyes at each other. It's just like a. But when I give in, and Johnny, what do you want to do today? Johnny, is that how you want it done? I'll do that. Johnny, you like me turning the light off earlier when we go, okay, fine, we'll turn the light off earlier. Man, how can Johnny have anything against me? The wars seem to stop when one side surrenders and says, war's over. Your preference is my priority. So, number three. <laughs> this might seem obvious, but it's so crucial. Include God as the center of the relationship. Ecclesiastes 4.12 talks about the threefold cord not being easily broken. Well, man, wife, and then God. The threefold cord that's not easily broken. It's commonly illustrated as a triangle. You have your three points, 
The top point is God. The two bottom points, man and woman. And man and woman get closer together as they get closer to the top point, which is God. So as God is put in the center and made the focus, as each strive for their significance in the Creator, not in each other, then they find happiness in each other as they come closer to God. So don't neglect God. Well, of course I won't. We're both Christians. It's going to be fine. You will be surprised how many Christian couples don't pray with each other. How can you say God's at the center of your relationship if you don't pray together? Think about what happens when you pray. You're turning, the two couples are turning to each other and bringing God in the very center by their co-prayer. God's literally in the middle of the marriage. But man, if we live on, well yeah, we're Christians, God's in the midst of our marriage, and then we're doing all this. God might be hovering somewhere over the top, but where is He in your midst? I'm just amazed that good Christians that don't pray together. Include Him in the center and you'll find yourself growing nearer. Number four. This one, I, um, this one's interesting. Learn to love your spouse when the feeling of being in love stops. Learn to love them when you no longer feel in love. That happens, alright? They generally say after the first year of marriage. The first year is like all romantic and gushy and feeling, oh, we're so in love. And of course, that's what dating's like. And, but there comes a time when you've lived together long enough, you know each other well enough, you see the flaws and imperfections so magnified that the relationship feels more like brother and sister. <laughs> and the feeling of romance isn't there anymore. Now, you will still have, down the road, those flares of romance and those moments, and you'll still feel in love at times, but there will be times when you don't feel in love. And it is to our benefit to learn to then choose to love when we don't feel in love, lest we have the mindset of most Americans say, the feeling's gone. We must not be in love anymore. I guess I, you know what, I'm in love, I'm feeling something for them, I think love moved on, therefore let's move on, honey, okay, well they divorce and split up. It's not how it works. Um, if you want to read, it's quite fascinating, read more on this, C.S. Lewis deals with this particular subject in his book, Mere Christianity. It's in his um, chapter on marriage, so if you want to read more on that, basically he describes that in order to transition from romantic love, you have to start choosing to love. Rather than trying to revive artificially that thrill of love, just accept that you've now moved into a new stage of love. It's explained like this. Um, when you first are on the paintball range, I don't know if some of you remember your first, any type of warfare, any type of guns being shot at you, the thrill of being on that field holding a loaded gun. Maybe you've gone shooting. Same difference. <laughs> it's just all oh, the power and the thrill and the excitement. Now, you guys know if you've played long enough, that thrill wears off. Okay, it's the gun. Your, thr your new thrill moves beyond that to victory. You now have thrill in watching your guys work together and 
completely, uh, completely and totally annihilate your opposition with success. That becomes, for me, the new thrill. But what if I miss the thrill of, oh, just the thrill of holding a gun, and every time I pick up my gun, I'm trying to work up those emotions. I'm trying to get that thrill back. And, oh, the gun, oh, the gun, I'm holding it. Oh, I'll go, bam, bam, I've been hit. What? Oh, what happened? You know, you never move on and grow. But that's what some people try to do in their marriages. Oh, no, the romantic feelings are subsiding. Try to work them up. C.S. Lewis would say, no, accept it. Because what you're going to do is you're going to move on to a new thrill. So now learn to choose to love. Make that choice, that will. Set yourself to it and depend on God's love to work through it to bring you guys into this new phase of your relationship. By the way, why would you ever want to live in romantic love forever? I think about it. Alright, you may not understand, but when you see other people in romantic love, I remember when Johnny first was around Heather... A little absent-minded. <laughs> Things aren't getting done. I, I can recall, you know, those feelings. It, you're in a whole other world when that happens. You can't function in life feeling that way forever. It's by God's grace that that feeling, all right, we're now mature. We still love each other, but we don't have to be like, whoa, and la-la land about it. We can function. Therefore, I call this realistic love. Realistic. So, learn to move on when it happens. From romantic love to realistic love. It's an interesting. I've been chewing on that a little bit. I would like to think about that. I think I'll, one day I'll get it more when I'm there. But, hey, I, I, it makes sense to me that there's a phase that you must transition into. Number five. These two are a little quicker. Two nevers. Never refer to or say the word divorce especially in an argument or fight. Um, of course, I have no experience here, but I've been told that this is a very good rule. And from example, I've never heard my parents say that word ever. And, you know, they've been married a long time. Um, they still love each other. Like, I, I seriously don't know. Maybe it's just because I know them, but really, I don't know two couples that have a better marriage than my parents. And I know many other couples never, ever mention the word divorce. Because the mere mention of the word implies a severe option for the word. Why even bring it up as if it's doable, it might happen. Divorce, the word divorce, from your vocabulary. Six and finally, never drink or seek satisfaction from any other spring. Now, I'm pulling imagery here from Proverbs chapter 5. This is how Solomon refers to it. What he means by spring is the love and intimacy and sexual intercourse of your wife. Never drink or seek satisfaction in another spring. And oh, I'm not just talking about adultery. That's clear and cut. But even just with the eye, seeking satisfaction somewhere else. My wife doesn't look the way she used to, but she looks more like the way she used to. Never seek satisfaction outside your spring. I'll read from Solomon 5, Proverbs 5, verse 15. His command, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, 
Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now this is how you can make this happen. Let your fountain be blessed. Your fountain of sexual desire. And rejoice. So it's blessed by rejoicing in the wife of your youth. A lovely, if you don't like words, cover your ears. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you always. Um, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. I love that word, intoxicated. Uh, the King James, I think the New King James uses the word enraptured always in her love. And uh, the word can also mean led astray. <laughs> Don't be led astray by her, or girls, him. Be led astray by her love. And, and it talks about her breasts. I mean, let her body, not the one in the magazine or on the screen or on in the internet or in, at work, let her satisfy you. Be enraptured, intoxicated, led astray with her. Drink from that fountain and be satisfied therein. Very practical, but sometimes we just need the Bible to slap us and tell us this is how it is. That is where you're satisfied and never seek to drink or be satisfied elsewhere. Do those six things. You'll be weaved as one flesh forever by God's grace. Never count out God's grace. That is our strength. So, that is... Um, our exploration into the world of marriage through the eyes of Adam and Eve. And I pray that this was somewhat beneficial for us. Next week, we'll learn how to get to this point of marriage. Let us pray. Jesus, <laughs> thank you so much for loving us so sacrificially. And you call us to, re to enjoy that love by our act of surrender. So God, we surrender ourselves tonight wanting more of your love to fill us and satisfy us. And God, may we learn this here and now so that when we're married <laughs> it's simply an extension of our relationship with you. Learning to sacrificially love and surrender. God, we pray for our future spouses. Be with them and guide them in purity and Lord, direct our path so that we meet one another in your due time. Bless that marriage as a match made in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.